All right. Uh, today we begin a new series. It's uh, in some sense a repeat because it's a series I did when we began the Disciple Center. Uh, it was part of our beginning. Uh, and I have been asked over and over by people both at, in the Disciple Center and outside of the Disciple Center uh, to do that one again. It's based on a uh, structural understanding of uh, making disciples that Dr. Lewis and I developed for our development and discipleship course. And um, so I'm going to uh, go through it in more detail than I did last time, uh, and yet not in full detail because uh, this is not a course and we couldn't, we couldn't do that. The basis of the series is the Great Commission. Uh, as it is called, uh, and specifically as it's expressed in Matthew 28, uh, verses 18 to 20. Actually, 16 to 20, if you want to turn there while I'm doing this introduction. Today, uh, I'm going to do an introduction, and we'll look at that text. And I will also mention the outline of the series uh, that we're going to do. The Great Commission has been altered in the minds of many Christians, into a command to evangelize um, uh, in the sense of confronting someone with the gospel and bringing them to the point of a confession of Jesus as Lord. As if that's it. That's the, the whole Great Commission. Um, you know, give your testimony, tell them the gospel, get them to accept Jesus as Lord. If you actually look at the Great Commission, uh, that is not its... Uh, a content, and that's not its purpose. So we're going to take a look at it. We're going to look at the passage. I want to particularly notice in verse 16 uh, who it is given to. So in Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20, it says, The eleven disciples proceeded uh, to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now you recall, at the resurrection of Jesus, he told the women to tell the disciples that he would see them in the Galilee. Uh, now, he saw them actually the next week in Jerusalem, but they eventually made their way to Galilee. And he gave them a mountain that he would uh, meet with them. It's uh, not the Mount of Olives, which is in Judah. A lot of people think the Great Commission was given... At the ascension. It was not given at the ascension. It was given prior to that. So it says that uh, uh, they came to the mountain that he designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now this passage is very familiar to us. Um, it is so familiar in its King James form that it's very hard for other translations to alter that uh, form a little. So I want to look at each of the pieces of it so that we have an idea of what's being said here. First, it says that the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee. Now, why eleven? Of course, we know uh, Judas has uh, hung himself uh, after betraying the Lord. 
So there are now 11 of the 12 disciples. These 12 were more than just disciples. Jesus had a lot of disciples. They're mentioned throughout the scriptures and throughout the gospels. Uh, But these were to be his apostolic witnesses. They were the ones that he had chosen specifically. They were the ones that he spent most of his ministry time teaching. They were his primary disciples, if if, uh, we can use that term. And we know from Acts chapter 1 verse 22 that when they select the twelfth to replace Judas, uh, Matthias, that the claim is that he has to be someone who was with them from the baptism of John to the ascension. In other words, it has to be someone who is a full witness of Jesus' ministry when he began it at his baptism into the wilderness, then his teaching of the disciples, his instructing them about the kingdom during the period after his um, uh, uh His resurrection, and then actually a witness to the ascension. And Matthias fits that um, mode, and so he's counted with them. Now, it's important to say that because this is not a text that is simply given to every believer. That's how we hear it. And if you look at the other times when the texts are given, the Great Commission is given, uh, it's given always to the eleven. Now, It says that they're going to be witnesses of him to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so clearly there's got to be some continuation after their life of others who are doing this. Uh, And that would include many people down through the ages. But it is not a text that says everybody is supposed to do this. Uh, Important to keep that in mind because of what it is that they're being told to do. So we have the eleven. Then Jesus comes up to them and he says these words, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, this is a claim by Jesus that the Father has given all authority to him in heaven and on earth. And there is only one exception to this word, all authority. That exception is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I want you to look at that. It's a passage we've looked at before. But I think it bears uh, underscoring at this point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 27. It says, regarding the subject of Christ being raised from the dead. That he, meaning God the Father, has put all things in subjection under his, meaning Jesus' feet. But when he, the Holy Spirit here in the writing of the scriptures, says all things are put in subjection, uh, it is evident that he, meaning God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. In other words, all things in heaven and in earth other than the Father are put in subjection to Christ. And then it says, and when all things are subjected to him, then that means uh, they actually come under his full authority, which is what the kingdom will be. Then the Son himself also will be subject to the one who subjected all things to him, that is the Father, so that God may be all in all. 
So there's this one proviso here. When Jesus says, all authority is given to me, he's not saying, I took it. He's saying, it's been given to me by the Father. There is nothing other than the Father that is not fully under the person of Jesus. Now, that's a very full way of saying Jesus is Lord. Because the word Lord uh, in our Bibles is usually the divine name or Kyrios or Adonai, which means the boss of me. And that really is the idea of Jesus being our Lord and Master, uh, not simply our Savior. There's too many people who think of Jesus as Savior and don't think of Him as Lord. But He's making it clear to these eleven who are going to represent Him, they will be His apostles, that all authority is given to Him in heaven and in earth. Now, having said that, He says to them, Go therefore. Now, this is where I think the King James Bible uh, still holds sway over all the translations. Almost every translation says, go therefore. Uh, As if it's an imperative. uh, It's a command to go somewhere. And that's not what the text is saying. The Greek text here is in a particular uh, form that is at least mentioned in the uh, NASB uh, footnotes here, that what it means is, as you go from here, or as you go somewhere. In other words, it doesn't say go. It says, from this point on, as you go, where you go, and they're going back to Jerusalem, uh, you are to do something. That's the command. So the command is not to go. The command is what is said next. And uh, that's an important one. So what is that command? And the command is make disciples. That command is that they are disciples of Jesus. They are to make other disciples of Jesus. Now the disciples are not simply people who believe in Jesus. They are not simply people who said Jesus is Lord. They are people who have spent at least three years daily living with Him, experiencing Him, learning from Him, all kinds of things that He as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord, as Master has taught them. And He has instructed them. They have come to Him as disciples Not knowing this, he's now given them the knowledge, skills, and values. And then what he's saying now is, now you replicate yourself by making disciples. Not making saved ones. Not making believers. Making disciples. Which is really important. The idea of a disciple is one who is... Uh, learning a system of life, a way of life from another person. Now, he says then, you are to make disciples of the nations. The word there is ethnos, where we get our word ethnic. And there are two ways that we can understand this text. The most common way is to think that he is saying, I want you to go to the nations 
which are all the peoples other than Israel. Well, that kind of runs into a problem because the gospel is to the Jew first. So it is more likely that they understood him as to go to the nations, the nations, because it's plural here, of Judah and Israel. In other words, to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and then to the diaspora Jews beyond that. Now, you might say, well, that's not how I heard it. No, but that's how Luke seems to understand it, and the apostles seem to understand it. It's not likely that they understood this as making disciples of the Gentiles. Because Jesus kept telling his disciples, don't go to the Gentiles. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I have not come to the nations. I have come to Israel. All through the Gospels, the Gospels and Jesus' words are almost exclusively to Jews... And occasionally, when he interacts with a Gentile, he makes a distinction. First, he was shocked that the, that the centurion had faith. I haven't found that in Israel. And then when the Samaritan woman says to him, uh, uh, where do we worship? She says, you guys don't know what you're uh, worshiping. We do because salvation is of the Jews. And then when the woman says, Lord, heal my children, he says, it's not right to give that which goes to the children, to the dogs, to the unbelievers. And the woman says, but the dogs receive the crumbs from them. In other words, in other words if you really read the biblical text, their focus is not the Gentiles. We will see that in Paul's writings when Paul says there's a mystery in the gospel that hasn't been understood until now and that's that the Gentiles are being included in the promises as fellow heirs and fellow partakers. But that's way after this period. If we look at the book of Acts, you will see that the disciples go nowhere. They stay in Jerusalem. They make no effort to reach Gentiles for the first ten chapters of the book of Acts. And then there is a vision, and that vision is given to Peter, and he doesn't get it, about unclean food and don't call unclean what I call unclean. And then some Italians show up, and he goes with them, and he tells them about what the Lord has done with them, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they speak in tongues like Pentecost, and Paul goes, well, I guess I should... I mean, Peter says, I guess I should baptize him. He comes back, and the other disciples are going, what are you doing going to the Gentiles? Now, he could have easily said, well, I'm just doing the Great Commission. But he doesn't. He says, I had a vision, and then these people came. I was told to go with them. I started talking. The Holy Spirit landed on them just like he did us. So what could I do but baptize them? So they quieted down and they said, well, then I guess God's going to save some Gentiles too. Their focus is not on reaching the nations. Their focus is on reaching Israel. It will be Paul's focus to reach not only Israel, but the nations. And that will, that will spread later. So uh, that's found in Acts chapter 11, 19 to 20, if you want to look at it. I don't have time to talk about it now. But Paul's ministry will open the gospel to the Gentiles that will create a struggle with how a Gentile is to be discipled and what difference might be required. So we're back to the Great Commission. 
they are understanding this as you are now to make disciples of the Messiah among Israel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in the diaspora. Now, he, the first thing he says in making the disciple is you are to baptize them. This baptism is not John's baptism. It is a placing of someone directly into water. Uh, most commonly, it's just a dipping in that sense. Although the DDK says that the early believers, the Gentile believers, immersed three times in living water, running water. But it said if you can't do running water, you can do still water. And if you can't have enough water to completely baptize them, you can pour water on them. So this distinction begins to make some exceptions. But the general rule is, if a person says, I'm going to follow Jesus as Messiah, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, they go into the water and they are baptized into the water. And that baptism begins their discipleship process. They are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This may be the reason that the early DDK says to do it in do it three times. And in fact, in many of the ancient churches, uh, people are baptized in immersed three times. And some brethren churches continue to do that today. Um, I don't think that's explicitly said here, but I can see why people would tie that in. But the idea is this immersing in water by someone who is adult enough to know what they're doing and to function. This is an adult baptism, if you will, of a person who has chosen to become a disciple in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This formula ultimately is about the authority and the sake of the one being named. You are being brought to the Father through the Son and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You almost can hear the echo of that in the ending of 2 Corinthians where Paul says, Now, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. That immersion into water puts us into connection by our profession of faith with the living God and the discipleship process now begins. Now he says to them, teaching them to observe. Interesting word. The word observe there means to guard and to preserve, to keep and maintain. It is the idea of something being given to you that you are to take care of and you are to operate and you are to ultimately pass on to others. So it is not simply a belief, it is a way of life. And he says, you are to observe what? All that I commanded you. Now, Jesus taught his disciples in parables. He taught in public and he taught privately. A few years ago I did a series on the public uh, sermons of Jesus. Uh, I hope to get back to the private 
teachings of Jesus that he gave his disciples and then the parables that he gave so that he could preach them out in the open but they're not, they're, their information would not be understood by the general public but would be understood by his disciples. So they are public statements that are privately understood. Uh, and, and that is what he said. The discipleship is to be baptized and to be taught everything that the apostles were taught so that the full system of discipleship is being passed down. So, that's the essence of a disciple. The disciple carries on without loss all that was entrusted to him by his teacher. And then he entrusts that to his students. Now, I've been part of a uh, jiu-jitsu group for a very long time. Uh, the original founder of the system taught a system. And this traditional jiu-jitsu system passes on every bit exactly the way that it was originally taught. They work very hard to maintain that. Now, there are things that are added. There are things that are adjusted, but even when those things are added and adjusted, the, the original stuff is kept central so that the system maintains its fidelity to the master of the system. And that's just a human system. Imagine the content that Jesus gave his disciples is the ultimate of truth and the way of life that we are supposed to Follow. So it's not just a matter of saying, I believe in Jesus and then going our way. He's given us 66 books. He's given us the teachings. He explained and expressed and taught and practiced and experienced with his disciples all of these things. And he's telling them, you are to make disciples, making sure that they know all of that. Well, that eliminates a lot of people from doing the Great Commission. How do you do the Great Commission if you don't know what Jesus taught? If you just know he died, rose from the dead, ascended, and he's coming back, that's enough to get someone to be a believer, but it's not enough to get them to be a disciple. And the Great Commission is to make disciples, not to make believers. So again, that's why the Disciple Center is about trying to maintain this whole thing. Now, very important, his last statement. And lo, I am with you, Every day to the end of the age. That's literally what the Greek says. Every day to the end of the age. You are not on your own. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus said to the disciples, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And in the person of the Holy Spirit, He is dwelling with us every day until the end of the age. We are never alone. He is always with us. We're not always with Him. But He is always with us. And so it began. The disciples taught their children and the converts to this faith. This faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And from there it's been passed down from parent to child, teacher to disciple, pastor to congregants, author to reader in many ways and through multiple generations across multiple languages and cultures. It's been adapted with good uh, intent and it's been altered by false teachers so that you and I have a tremendous task before us in this generation. We have to sort through 
All that has been said about this, an attempt to make disciples of our children and our grandchildren, as well as those of our neighbors, friends, and strangers who become converts. To do this, we need the scriptures, and we need the scriptures in a manner that we have as close to the Hebrew and the Greek text as we can get. Now, the best thing would be for us to all learn Greek and Hebrew. I doubt that's going to happen. We're going to learn a little bit. So, we need a biblical text that will be as close in English as we can possibly get to the Hebrew and the Greek. And that text, in my opinion, is why the New American Standard is our official Bible and it is the one that I use in that context. Because that attempt to stay as close to it, even where the Greek and Hebrew is ambiguous to to create an equal ambiguity in the English so that the nuances can be... uh, tested is really important and that's why we have made the NASB our official text for the Disciple Center. Now, we need not only the scriptures, but we must have uh, an understanding of the two great religions that have come from those scriptures, Judaism and Christianity. We know that Moses wrote down much of what God told him. But he passed down much of what God told him as well. So there was both a written tradition and an oral tradition. A written tradition, like a skeletal structure, stays rigid and fixed. But an oral tradition breathes and moves to fit the context and the the situations. And so we have, both in Judaism and Christianity, that which ties directly to the scriptures from where we cannot alter. No tradition is allowed to override the scriptures. On the other hand, there are traditions that are consistent with the scriptures that are helpful and many of those things have been passed down from the beginning both in Judaism and in Christianity. As Paul said, follow the traditions that we have taught you uh, even in the case where they were were not written down. So, we need that and then you and I have to sort through those traditions To find that part which is rightfully connected to all that Jesus taught his disciples. So that we also will be true disciples of Yeshua. Or Jesus. Or Jesus. By whatever term he is called. All discipleship systems are a way of life. Passed down from a master to the disciples and then on to their disciples. And biblical discipleship is passed down from parent to child in the household. Scripture is clear about that. And then converts are included with these systems as it's reinforced and enhanced in the congregation. Therefore, two institutions are critical to discipleship. The household and the congregation. The household is primary, the congregation is reinforcement, and we have in many ways made the congregation ineffective and primary to the household, and that's what we should not do. And that, again, is why the Disciple Center is a group of families discipling their children, uh, trying to raise a generation 
that will have their identity formed and their worldview formed within the discipleship of this faith. The content of that discipleship is found in multiple forms. This includes catechisms, and we have that. Discipleship relationships, which we also do. And then sequential teachings and spiritual disciplines. They're intended to form the identity, worldview, and place, that is, where in the body this person fits based on their gifting and maturity, within the community of faith and the kingdom of God. Now, we have a catechism forum, and the videos and the content are there. I'm not going through that in this series. What I am going to do in this series is another form of approaching the material and the substance of discipleship. It's found in the structure, if you will, and the connections that are there. Now, our sanctuary is one of those type systems. We are laid out in the direction of the temple and the tabernacle. The directions are correct. The order of the courtyard and the holy place and the most holy place is structured. The furniture is there so that you can see those connections. And when we teach on those things, the relationship they have to each other and their meaning becomes much clearer because there's an experiential component and not just words on a page. And so the other way of doing discipleship is to do it in a model that can be seen and built and handled and touched and talked about in a way that shows the connections of the, of, the, um, of the model. And that's what we're going to do in this, um, in this series. And I have placed on uh, Facebook and I've sent out in emails and I'll have them next week in full detail because we'll actually start that next week. Uh, two forms of this. The one form you have, which is the what I call the building form. Looks a little bit like a building. It's got a subflooring here. It's got the flooring. It's got walls or columns. It has a roof and it has contents inside of it. And what I'm doing is laying the foundation with the subflooring of grace upon which anything built that is not built on grace will be insecure. And I'll talk about that next week. But that's important. We will look at how these things connect, both in terms of the content of discipleship. Now, the other form, which you haven't seen, but I'll give it to you, and I'm hoping to have them blown up here so that we have a, a, a way for me to look at it and show it to you in, in clean, cleaner form, is a tree form. Now, why the tree form? Well... Discipleship in some ways is like a building where you build on the foundations and put that up. But that, but we're also people. We're also living beings, right? And so we need something that's alive, that grows and goes through a developmental approach because the discipleship of a convert is a little different than the discipleship of a child. The discipleship of a child should be that the spiritual content and the cultural content are framed appropriately through the developmental sequence. But a convert, which I am, I was already formed. I was already developed. I was already in the cultural context when the gospel came to me and there was a lot of transformation that needed to be done. So children are formed, converts are transformed, and then the book of Hebrews says some people didn't quite get formed right. You could say they're deformed. I wouldn't say that, but I just did. And they need to be reformed, right? 
So you remember the imagery in Jeremiah of the potter and the clay and the clay uh, broke in the potter's hands and he reformed it. So there are people who need to be formed. That's our children and our grandchildren. The way we do that in the home is age developmental appropriate. Then there are people that need to be transformed. They need to be pulled out of the secular, irreligious culture into the faith. And that discipleship will look different because they have to unlearn some things and relearn and transform. And then we have people who go, I didn't get this when I should have gotten this. And I need to now remediate that. I need to find a way to remediate that in me. So there have been a lot of people who have asked uh, online for this series. I'm going to try to talk about those things in that context. The tree form is because what happens is the, the tree begins by establishing its roots. And then it grows. And if those roots are bad, just like the foundation of a building, the tree will go bad. And then it has to develop before it brings fruit. It doesn't, it's not fully developed at the time. So we have to look at these in both ways. And I'll give you both of those uh, in some forms next week. So, uh, one of the problems that we have... As disciples. And you have this with anything. If I don't play my guitar for a while. Uh, I, some chords don't quite work the way they should. Right? If I don't read music for a while. I'll, I'll miss a flat or a sharp in there. Right? Uh, it's, I have a terrible time with the biblical languages. Because if I go through periods where I'm not using them directly. In that, they just kind of go away from me. You know? We all have this ability to forget God understood that, and through the Torah, He said to them, you will forget. So I want you to speak about these things over and over. Peter said, before I die, I'm going to tell you these things over and over, so that when I'm gone, you can, you can hear them again. We are forgetful creatures, and so it doesn't hurt for us to go back over some of this material again. Now the danger of going over material again is, I heard that, and you tune out. So one of the reasons I'm doing it this way instead of the catechism way is we've been doing the catechism way for a while and we're all reaching that point where we don't hear and what we forget just stays forgotten. I think by doing it in a different format, uh, it will happen. I'm always amazed that I'll talk about something, I'll talk about something, I'll talk about something. And parents, you know this, you talk to your kids about stuff and you think you've told them a bunch of times and they've got it. And then they hear somebody else say it. A stranger says the very same thing or an aunt or uncle says the same thing and they say, oh, do you know what I learned? And they tell you and you go, I've been telling you that for years, but they don't hear it, right? Sometimes a different way of telling it uh, brings that information out. So what we're going to do with the uh, content and structure of discipleship is going to start with grace and we're going to look at how grace is foundational to everything. And then we're going to look at what I call the triplets of the faith, faith, hope, and love. And with that foundation, we're going to look at lordship. The problem of looking at lordship before you are founded in grace is you end up with a performance anxiety. If a child doesn't believe that they are loved and accepted, any command for them to do something has performance anxiety in it. But if you know that you are accepted, that you are loved, that you are... You are uh, 
part of the family and you're being asked to do a task, you will struggle to do that task. You want to do it better, but you don't fear, fear that failure of doing the task will disqualify you. And that's an important part. So we're going to look at those things first. Then we're going to build on that foundation of lordship the commandments of loving God, loving our neighbor, and loving one another that are really the foundation of all the commandments. And then we're going to look at identity and worldview and the spiritual disciplines that operate within that structure so that ultimately what is seen on the roof are the fruit of the Spirit, the manifestation of the maturing of the disciple and the, the manifestation of the Spirit uh, because plants don't produce fruit in their infancy. They produce fruit in their maturity. We don't produce other children in our infancy and immaturity. We produce them in our maturity. And discipleship is the same way. You will not produce other disciples if you remain in an immature infant state in Christ. So that's what the series is uh, about, and I hope that it will draw a bunch of questions, and we'll be able to chase some theological rabbits in there, because I love to do that. But let's go to the Lord in prayer.